Welcome to the XYZ Experiment and today I'm so excited to introduce my friend Susie to our conversation today. So Susie is going to share with us her story of going through the IVF journey as a solo parent. Um, But to get us started, Susie, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Dash, and thanks for inviting me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's nice to be here. Um, So I am a registered nurse by trade, and I've been doing that for nearly 20 years. I can't believe it. And I then did my PhD probably about five or six years ago, and now work as a full-time researcher and uh, cross paths with Dash uh, in the same workplace, which is always lovely. Um, So my research focuses on heart disease and secondary prevention of heart disease. um, And I really enjoy working with patients and trying to improve patient education and um, getting them into cardiac rehab programs. So that's sort of my professional life. And personally, I split my time between the big city in Melbourne and a couple of years ago, I bought a house in Southwest Victoria in a small town um, where the population's 900 people. It was a pandemic purchase, a tree change. So, um, so boring of me, so typical. Um, And really enjoy that uh, sort of new life and, and the balance between the country and the city and actually enjoying more country time than city time these days. So yeah, that's a bit about me. Amazing. And Susie, what generation are you? Well, I'm a millennial, um, so I'm the same as you, Dash, I believe. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, it's weird saying that, millennial, it feels wrong, but that's what I am. (laughs) And what would you say is the most millennial thing about you? Well, yes, I've been thinking about this. Um, So this is probably embarrassing, but, you know, it it is what it is. I am a massive fan of Dawson's Creek, which really shows the era that I grew up in. Of course. (laughs) So that was in uh, the late 90s, I believe, as I was finishing high school. I can't remember what night it was on TV. It was like Wednesday or Thursday night. And that hour in my household was sacred to watch Dawson's Creek and just really enjoyed it. And Team Pacey all the way. So (laughs) Same, same. Oh my gosh, See, I was not expecting that. Horses <laughs> Creek, blast from the past. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did you ever wow. watch that as well, Sarah? Was that one of your, because you were right on the cusp. Yeah, yeah, but probably not, um, maybe watched it a bit more cynically than the Gen X, which would, yeah, sounds like very uh, wholesomely watching it. Oh, no, yeah. Gen X, I've never seen an episode. You've never <laughs> seen an episode of Dawson's Creek? Oh, sorry, Creek. Millennials. Millennials, wholesome. But I know of it. it. I know of it. But never seen an episode. So there you go. But it is interesting because I was always Team Pacey as well and I was always like, ew, Dawson, ew. Like, <laughs> they did not make him an attractive character. No. Nah. No. I totally nah. did but not. Pacey all the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, Susie, you have a new little man in your life. I do. Called Toby. And I was wondering if you could tell us the story of how Toby came into your life. Sure. Well, um, start at the start, I guess. So Toby is currently three and a half months old, um, only waking up once during the night now. So we're kicking goals. Um, (laughs) Don't look as tired as I did a few weeks ago. But um, yeah, the story of Toby is quite, um, goes quite far back because this is not something that I did lightly, obviously, becoming a a solo parent by choice. Um, So I'm a bit of a, I think it's the nurse within me. I'm a bit of a planner and I like to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. So um, 
you know, throughout my mid thirties, I would was sort of dating people and dating boys and, you know, they just often wasn't going anywhere. And um, so I sort of started to think, you know, if I don't meet the right person to have kids with, what would I do? And do, would I entertain the idea of having a child by myself? Um, so I sort of had never really fully decided, I guess, but I wanted to put steps in place so that I had that option. And obviously being a woman, there's a time limit on our fertility, um, that horrible ticking clock that everyone talks about. Um, and being a healthcare professional, I guess I was sort of even further aware of that. Um, so I sort of had 35 in my mind as a sort of cut off of, you know, needing to do something, whether it was egg freezing or whatever it was. So I had a chat to my GP and um, she she was could see that I was a bit of a planner and I wanted to have steps in place. And um, she referred me to a fertility specialist um, and he's he's just a gorgeous doctor. So we've had a, we had a couple of chats and talked about options and obviously looked at statistics of you know egg freezing ending up in a viable viable live birth and you know all those things. Um, so many many discussions and lots of thought. Um, and then I would think I was about 34 and I decided that I would want to, I did want to freeze some eggs. So we went, that was in 2018, um, went through with um, the whole process of, uh, you know, the injections and the scans and um, then an egg retrieval, which was successful. So that was great. So I felt like, you know, it was a small insurance possible, insurance policy, sorry. Um, it's not infallible. Um, it's not perfect, but I just thought, I would feel better with myself having known that I have those eggs in the freezer and that, you know, if I did try and use them, um, then they were there. And if I tried and it wasn't successful, at least I knew I'd tried. Um, so I popped them in the freezer and then I decided to keep going on the journey. Now, I, I believe that every fertility clinic is different. So there's there's overarching sort of rules um, around fertility and egg freezing and um, donor donors and things like that. Victoria is the most strictest state for anything to do with IVF um, in terms of legislation. Um, but I think what they do at the clinic level is quite individual. That's just my understanding. I could be wrong, but um, that's yeah what I've sort of learned along the way. Um, so my clinic um, was, I was initially labelled, it's a bit harsh, socially infertile because I didn't have a partner. Um, they did ask me that on the phone one day, like, oh, that's right, you're socially infertile. I was like, oh, ouch. Were you shocked when you heard that? <laughs> yeah. That's blown my yeah. mind. Wow. Yeah, socially yeah, infertile. Yeah. I knew that yeah. I knew the term existed, but to be sort of labelled that and then for them on the phone to sort of say it, I was like, we don't need to say it out loud. Like, wow. I know where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. So um, I do have a, you know, a background of polycystic ovaries. I don't have the syndrome, but, um, you know, there was a, potentially a few extra challenges in there as well. So um, the my clinic that I go to, they um, can... They, they prefer you to do two rounds of interuterine insemination. So, you know, if you want to say it crudely, it's like turkey baster sort of stuff, but in a clinic setting. <laughs> um, so I decided that I'd be happy to get pregnant. I sort of had made the decision in 2018, okay, I'm going to go forth. I'd be happy to conceive and get pregnant. Um, and so the next step with my clinic was to try two rounds, um, up to two rounds of interuterine insemination. So yeah, I can't believe I went forth because that decision felt easy, but along the process, you just have to keep making decisions and keep making sure that you're happy with it and keep coming back to it all the time. 
And yeah, in 2018, I felt sort of really happy with where I was at. And I thought, yep, no, I'm going to give this a try. So I chose a donor for, for interuterine insemination or IUI. Um, and I was really happy with the donor. The list is not extensive. Um, at my clinic, you don't get a picture. Um, I think that all my friends were most interested in the whole part of choosing a donor and we can come back to that. Um, but yeah, I chose a donor and I was happy. So I went into the clinic and um, had a round of IUI and then you have a bit of a wait to see if it's worked. And um, I did that twice and neither time was successful. And I didn't feel too sad about it because it was also a step in the process with this clinic once you've done two rounds, then they declare you medically infertile. Okay. So it's all part of the process um, sort of towards, you know, being medically infertile and then the next steps of doing full-blown IVF. How old were you at that, that stage? So I was probably, I was 34 when I froze the eggs yep. and I was probably 35 when I got to this part. Okay. Yeah, so in my mind, I really had that, oh, I'm at that cutoff. Because um, a lot of the literature sort of at that time referred to sort of 35 as the as the golden magic number um, for women. Um, so, yeah, I did the two rounds of IUI and um, that was unsuccessful. And then I just decided to pause there. The clinic were then declaring me medically infertile. So I was very happy to shed the label of socially <laughs> infertile. <laughs> Um, and I just decided to press pause for a little while because the next step was full-blown IVF. I had the eggs in the freezer. Um, they were just eggs though. They weren't embryos at that stage. Um, so I just pressed pause for a little while and, um, you know, my job's very busy and I was very happy with where I was in life. Otherwise, um, still dabbling in dating, but not being very successful, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just decided to have a bit of a rest because it's, you know, it's a big procedure and it's a lot of thinking and it's yeah big decisions. Um, and then in 2019, um, I actually got offered a job interstate in um, South Australia. And um, it really made me start to think, okay, I'm going to move, move states. What am I going to do with this plan that I've got sort of on the back burner? So um, I had a chat to my lovely fertility doctor again, and we decided that we would do another round of egg retrieval. So at this stage, I was probably 36 um and quickly hastily did it a couple of months before i moved <laughs> um and because i'd already been through it once um, we kind of knew how my body reacted to all the medications um and uh you know we could really tweak the doses and i actually got um, far more follicles and far more eggs the second time which i was really happy about so we had a discussion that this time we would keep some as eggs but we would also keep make some embryos as well because far more likely to end up as a live birth with an embryo compared yes. to using just an egg. Yeah. So again, I've still sort of found myself single. So I thought, okay, you know, if I had a partner, I had those eggs in the freezer and we could make them into embryos with a partner, but I didn't have a partner at that stage. So I was like, all right, time to make some embryos with donor sperm. So um, I sort of had to say goodbye. There's just so many steps that you don't anticipate in this journey. So I had to say goodbye to my previous donor that I'd used for IUI because it's a different list yes. to the IVF donors because IUI, you need much more sperm. Sorry, it's getting a bit graphic now. <laughs> and IVF, you only need one, right? Because you're gonna, one at a time, because you're gonna put them into the egg to make an embryo. So I had to start back at scratch and look at a new list. And this list um, was thankfully a little bit longer than the IUI list, so that was good. Um, and 
uh, chose a new donor and it actually became pretty obvious once I'd sort of read through them all, um, sort of discussed it with my mum as well. I always sort of shared part of the journey with her as well. She was very supportive, a little bit shocked, I think, but very supportive. Um, and we, we found a new donor and then um, had the egg retrieval. I, I can't remember how many I got now, isn't that terrible? It was maybe 15 or 14. Um, the previous time I think I'd got about six or seven, so I definitely did better the second time. Um, and then I had a chat to my doctor and we decided that we would sort of split them into two groups and make half of them embryos and keep half of them as eggs. Just again, just in case I met someone, I would have more eggs in the freezer um, in case I wanted to make embryos with a future partner. So we did that. And then because I was moving into state, I think most people would then go forth and do like a, a live transfer. So they'd have the egg retrieval, they'd be made into embryos. That takes about five days for them to progress and grow and um, split and divide and all that stuff. Um, and most people would then have one transplanted back in. But because I was about to move, I decided to put them all in the freezer, which I think is not super common. Um, but I put them all on ice and then moved into state for this new job um, and just sort of had them there sitting there in case I, I wanted to to use them. I was just wondering if you could go back and chat to us a little bit more about what kind of characteristics were you looking for in your donor? Yeah, great question. Um, and this is what everyone loves to talk to me at, about at dinner parties with my girlfriends. <laughs> um, so the other thing I should mention too is that you, um, the clinic or my clinic has a counsellor attached to it. So there is legislative counselling that you have to have, well, you did have to have um, back then um, in 2018, 2019 to freeze eggs, just so that you were aware of all the legislation and all the decision making and that you felt comfortable with it. So I got paired up with a great counsellor who I um, really enjoyed talking to. I never had counselling before and I just thought why have I never had this before this is amazing it's so nice to talk to someone objective about your life um so uh yeah and then in terms of choosing the donor she was very helpful in starting to think about the thought process behind that so it's really interesting obviously as a nurse I was very keen to look at their past medical history um, and make sure that they you know had you know nothing to um, crazy as part of their medical history. And, and what she pointed out to me, the counsellor, was that the medical history is actually self-reported. And you would know yourselves that medical history is often passed down through female lines and not usually the males in the family are like, oh, my wife knows about that or my mum knows about that. So she said, you have to be careful. If, if the medical history is quite clear on the forms that you get at your end, then you have to wonder, do they actually know their history or are they declaring it properly? If it's more complete and filled out, then you probably have a more accurate representation of what their medical past history is. That's really so that interesting. Was, yeah, and that was really important to me to, to look at their history um, and to make sure I could have the healthiest child possible and, you know, think about what that history might mean for a future child. With the um, information that you're given, are you given, like, obviously the medical history, but then are you given things like features, height? Yeah. You know, how dark the hair is? Yeah, yeah. All so that my sort clinic, of thing as um, well? Absolutely, yeah. So I sort of was... Most important thing to me was medical history. And then the other really interesting thing that you discuss with the counsellor is um, what will this child look like? Because if I chose, I'm very fair. <laughs> and if I chose a donor that was, you know, had darker skin and darker hair, and that child then did not end up looking so much like me, that can be confusing and difficult for future sort of donor children to sort of reconcile because they look at their family and they're like, I don't look like you, so 
you know, what's my story? And the other thing she mentioned was that, you know, you might be in the supermarket with your child and people look at you as a family unit and think, oh, that child doesn't look like that mother. So how does that work? I mean, I think we're seeing more and more diversity of families now. I mean, this was these were discussions I was having in 2018 and I already think we've seen a big shift since then. Um, but I think, you know, that was something else I considered was their features. So yeah, um, you absolutely get the donor's features. So you get their height, their build, their skin color, whether um, it tans easily, um, and their eye color, their hair color. Um, and then interestingly, my clinic also gives you all those stats for their parents as well. So you can kind of get an idea of what their parents or Toby's grandparents might have looked might look like. Um, and so yeah, you get all of that, you get marital status. Um, I think I got did I get I think I got sexuality, whether they've got any previous children. So my donor has one child from a previous marriage. Um, and medical history. And then there's a little last page is like a little questionnaire of questions. So what are their hobbies? What are their interests? What drives them? And then the last question is, why did you donate? And I always found that the most fascinating question to read and gives you a really good insight into the kind of person that they are. So most of them would say, I know people that have had struggles or I know people that want to start families and they haven't been able to, and it's been a real challenge and I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted to help other people have children. And I think, um, you know, in the delivery suite, when the, the nurses handed Toby over to my mum, because she was with me, that really hit home to us. And, and mum said, she still talks about it now, that she had Toby in her arms and she just thought, what a generous gift this person has given us. They, we might never meet him, we might, that's that's another thing we could discuss, but, um, you know, what a generous gift. He, he doesn't know us, the donor, and he doesn't know what our values are or, how we plan to raise this child, but you know, so generous and what a massive leap of faith for both parties. Um, so yeah, that's that's the kind of information you get and we just think it's such a generous gift and so fortunate to be able to have it. So I've heard um, as well, well, I know of a case where um, the baby photo of the donor was given. I wish we had that. I know everyone asked me about photos, but my clinic, I think that might be clinic dependent. So we didn't have any photos. Yeah. How many, um, were you successful the first time? Like how many so, cycles So yeah, I had the two rounds of IUI, they were unsuccessful yeah. and then went forward to IVF. Um, actually it'll be in t tomorrow, it'll be a year since I had the embryo transfer for Toby. And he, so it was the 23rd of April um, last year, and he was um, the first embryo transfer I had, and he was successful. So wow. very, very, very lucky. That's an incredible um, stat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so not normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was quite fascinating because we went to the clinic, it was a Saturday morning, um, waltzed in, mum, mum came with me and she sat outside, it was COVID times. Yeah. Um, and um, I went in and, you know, we did the procedure and um, I came out and mum said, how was it? It's all good, all fine, went well. And then we thought we'd, we, it was all in within walking distance of where my mum lives in Melbourne, so we're very lucky. So we thought, oh, we'll walk back to a cafe and we'll have a coffee and a croissant. Um, and that will be like our little ritual because I'll probably have to do this a couple of times because yeah. I was fully aware of the statistics. Um, and so we just really thought that we would have to do it two or three times. And so we thought we'd start this nice ritual around having the transfer and 
walking to the cafe and having a coffee and something to eat. Um, and yeah, I only had to do it once. <laughs> so very, very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that, that, that ritual of you sitting down was surreal, like, cause it's a weird, I've had IVF. That's why I know. And, and you, you'd probably go there with your mum thinking, wow, this is, is this happening or isn't it? Or what was that feeling like? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to describe. So they talk isn't about it? the two week wait. Yeah. 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 And it's strange thinking I could be pregnant. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, it's just so I didn't have to wait quite two weeks just the way my cycle fell, but um and I only let sort of a few close girlfriends know what I was doing. Didn't want to I didn't really advertise it to wider circles for obvious reasons, but um, you know, some girlfriends would ring me sort of a week later and be like how's it going? What's happening? I'm like, yeah, I think well, I haven't got my period. So it could have worked. Who knows? But you know, so yeah, every day was just like, all right, I've made it another day. Um, and I really, really didn't think it was going to work the first time. So it was just a huge shock. And luckily I made a lot of, did a lot of work in, in again, deciding again to go forth and potentially become pregnant. So I'd sort of done that in 2018 with the IUI and then I had to redo it all again. And you know, the world was particularly crazy at that time. I'm very COVID cautious person, as all my friends would know. I've read too much about it, I think, being a researcher. Um, and so I just thought, what am, you know, this is a huge, huge decision. Um, you know, we're in a pandemic. The war in Ukraine had started. Climate change wasn't looking good. <laughs> and, oh, it's not looking good. And, you know, I just had all these things to consider, which I perhaps, you know, wasn't as as big a decision in 2018, but it felt really big in 2022. Um, I don't know, maybe as I was getting older as well. Yeah, it was just a lot to consider. But yeah, that that week, that sort of week and a half of waiting and thinking, oh my goodness, this could have worked. Amazing. Yeah. So the way, Susie, I'm really interested in how you started the story. You were just, it sounds like it was just such a given for you in your life that you wanted to have kids. I'm really interested in that. So is this just something ever since you were little, you were just like, that's just a given, I want to be a mum? Yeah, I think um, I sort of probably hadn't focused on it, you know, sort of throughout my life, but I'd always sort of thought I would have kids. Um, and I guess just as the, as you know, your age increases and you head towards that sort of 35, 36, 37, you really have to start thinking about it. But I think you're right. I think I did think it was always going to be a given. I love being with kids. I've got lots of, you know, godchildren and pseudo godchildren, and I'm just a big kid at heart, really. So I love playing with them. Um, I'm an only child, so I love, you know, I love sort of playing board games and things like that because I never had many people to play with when I was growing up. So sort of relive my own childhood with my friends' kids. Um, and uh, yeah, it's I guess it's just something that as I got older, I thought, no, I really want this as part of my life. But it was a huge decision. Um, and huge decision to think about doing it by yourself as well and what support networks you have and whether that's something that you think you can actually do and whether it's a sensible decision. Um, but yeah, I think it probably, I'd, I just love being with kids and I love having them as part of my life. And, I, and you know, it is lovely being sort of, you know, little kids, aunties and being a godmother, um, it's very special, but to have your own child is probably the next level. And yeah, I, want, I, I think I got to the point where I was like, no, I really want to do this or I really want to have a go at doing this so I have no regrets as well. When you were going through the process, was the offer there to put two eggs in at the same time 
versus the one as well? Was that a decision yeah. for you? Uh, no. So my clinic, I can't think now. I don't think they like doing two eggs at a time or two embryos, sorry, at a time. Um, so I think there is the option to do it if you discuss it with the doctor, but I think their preference at my clinic and in the in this day and age, maybe there's more research behind it, was just to implant one. Okay. So, yep. yeah. And then what you did have to decide was, though, was how many you were going to defrost. So I had, in the end, from that second egg retrieval and then turning half of that batch into embryos, I ended up with six, no, sorry, five embryos. Um, which was pretty good and I was happy with that. I felt really, along the way, I felt really comfortable with all the numbers that I had. Um, obviously, the more you've got, the better your chances are, but I felt like, okay, I've done, an, I've done enough. And obviously there's financial considerations as well as every round is, you know, um, so expensive. Um, but I felt really comfortable with having five. And so um, you, when you're going, getting ready for the transfer, you talk about how many you're happy for them to defrost because before you arrive, um, they're getting the lab technician is there and they're getting the embryo out and defrosting it. And then if the first one fails to defrost correctly, um, and that's a risk, um, then they can go to another one and another one, another one. But if you, you know, you could use all five in one hit potentially. So again, very lucky. I think, you know, for me, it just feels like Toby was really meant to be here because, uh, it was one, one, one embryo that got defrosted, one embryo that got transplanted or, um, and then he was here. So um yeah i that was one of the key decisions so susie i know you talked about talking to a counselor and how helpful that was but did you talk to anyone else and i know you also mentioned your mum but did you talk to anyone else who had gone through this process um and what what their tips and kind of thoughts were yeah that's a good question i mean trying to sort of think back to those days um so yeah, definitely talk to my mum. We're a very small, my immediate family is very small. It's really just her and I um, after, you know, grandparents passing away and things like that. So um, she was widowed when I was very young. So it's just sort of been her and I um, most of my life. So we're very, very close. So definitely discussed it with her. And as I said, she helped me look through the donor list and we sort of made that decision. I sort of said, I think it's this one and she would sort of agree with me. Um, and, uh, and then in terms of other, the counsellor was super helpful. And then um, interestingly, I didn't, I was thinking about this this week. I didn't join any Facebook groups or any support groups. There are heaps out there. Um, I just felt like I didn't need that kind of level of support because it was really my decision and I didn't sort of want to be swayed by other people's stories or things like that. It wasn't really a super conscious decision, but looking back now, I didn't seek those sorts of things out. I do have one girlfriend that has done it before. So her son is now four. Um, and so I did speak to her a couple of times and, and we would sort of keep in touch. Um, and I've since got a few other friends that I've sort of found along the way. Um, but yeah, I just felt like it was more of a deeply personal decision um, about whether to do this solo and, and whether to yeah keep going on the path. Um, and I didn't really seek out much support. The one thing I did do though, which I had sort of forgotten about until I thought about this week, is that I listened to a podcast and this was even before I started meeting the fertility doctor because as I said, I'm a bit of a planner <laughs> and I love podcasts. Um, and so I listened to a podcast called Not By Accident and it's by Sophie Harper. It's, it's, it's quite, you know, a few years ago now, it would be even pre 2018, um, but it's still available. I looked it up today actually. And she is a documentary filmmaker and a, and a lecturer. 
And so she decided to become a solo mum by choice and she decided that she would document audio snippets of that journey along the way. And so she has this amazing account of how her daughter Astrid came to be. Um, And I just remembered listening to this podcast and I was thinking about it this morning. I think I listened to the first episode as I went for a run one day around Albert Park Lake in in Melbourne when I was up there. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is so empowering to hear her story. Um, Sort of, it's in the back of my mind. If I don't meet someone, is this something I wanna do? And just to hear her story and all the thought making around it um, and her journey through the clinic. So she actually starts a podcast at the clinic on, um, I think she had IUI um, and it was successful first go, amazing. Um, And so yeah, she's on the bus going to the clinic, recording audio snippets into her phone and um, yeah, and it, it progresses as Astrid grows up. So it was just such an amazing resource. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is so great. So that was another thing that helped me along the way. But um, I talked to girlfriends, like girlfriends that, you know, had partners and kids of families of their own. But um, yeah, in terms of solo mum specific resources, I didn't sort of dive into any groups or anything, but um, I just sort of had a couple of girlfriends that had done it and this podcast. And yeah, I just felt like it was more a decision that I had to make myself without being sort of influenced too much by external factors. I'm fascinated to know you've got pregnant, you're going along, not telling too many people yet, I imagine, but then when you start telling people who don't know your journey (laughs) and they know you though and they're thinking, she hasn't got a partner, like (laughs) what was happening then when you were starting to tell people? What were the questions you were being asked? Like what was happening then? Yeah, it was a really strange time because one of the best parts about being pregnant is telling people that you're pregnant (laughs) because it's such a happy announcement. And then, yeah, I have this added little tweak at the end, like, hang on, I don't, she hasn't got a ring on her finger. She, I don't never hear her talking about a partner. So um, I think probably the strangest place that I made the announcement in terms of that was at work. (laughs) So um, especially because we hadn't been together in the office So we hadn't had those social conversations, like all our meetings were on Zoom and it was kind of, you know, um, at arm's length. And I started a new job in 2021. So a new team, I'd come back to Melbourne. um, And so I didn't really know them that well and we didn't have that chance to have that sort of social connection like you would normally. Um, So I just kind of, I told my boss first when I was 11 weeks pregnant and he, Again, we don't sort of ha- we don't talk much about social stuff. It's he's very busy. Um, it's a very busy work environment. So I just shut the door and said, "Just want to let you know um, that I'm pregnant. It's 11 weeks. It's very early. Um, so I'll just keep you posted." And he was just like, "Oh, congrats! Yeah, great." And then I just kind of left it there with him, <laughs> and I don't think he really thought too much about it. But other colleagues, I just sort of and then you know you tell one colleague and then it just sort of kind of spreads. So I would my sort of plan of attack is that I would just mention quickly like oh, I'm pregnant and I'm going solo or I've done this solo and I just throw it in really quickly and really quite casually and people mostly are just like oh great okay right and then once I told one person in my team sort of that it just sort of spread and I didn't have to worry about telling the rest of the people but I everyone has been very supportive and then eventually it got back to my boss that you know I didn't have a partner and 
And uh, I think he'd sort of said to someone, oh, this is very, very brave of Susie to go down this path. Um, so yeah, my sort of tactic, cause I really need to think about this as Toby gets older as well, um, you know, about sort of how we just make it normal and comfortable. I think I'm very lucky that we're now in 2023. So it is more common than it used to be. Um, and yeah, everyone's just sort of takes it very well. Um, I have a neighbor in my country town is quite conservative and my mum goes out walking with her quite a lot and I said to mum can you tell her like I don't want to have to go there with her she's religious as well and I just thought I'm not sure how it's going to go down and so yeah mum took on the task <laughs> and she told her and you know everyone has taken it really well and I think people that know me know that you know um, this was something I really wanted to do I didn't take the decision lightly um, and I think people I think something I underestimated too because I've never been pregnant before Toby was that people just love babies and people are just so happy for you um, and we've just had such a massive outpouring from our sort of friends and family and community that I just did not expect so um, yeah I think it was a joy to tell people but you're right there is just that little sort of um, disclaimer <laughs> like by the way um, but yeah I just slip it in quickly slip it in casually like it's completely normal and people usually are fine with it. And now it's so accepted it's just wonderful for women that this is able to yeah. be able to move forward like this now I really think it is. And I was um, telling some friends um, that, you know, this podcast episode was happening and they were like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. This is so interesting. And then they were like, we really don't need men. <laughs> I, like, yeah, I wonder my, if that's um, what they're going to take from this. <laughs> I know. Well, one of my girlfriends who's also a scientist um, and a researcher, she wrote on my card um, that she gave to Toby and I, um, who needs men and thanks to science. <laughs> <laughs> and yet she gave birth to a boy. And you gave birth to a boy. <laughs> I know. I know. I I <laughs> and so now knowing the whole process and going through it and having beautiful Toby and Toby only waking up once in the night at the moment. Oh. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers, fingers that way. crossed. <laughs> What do you wish you knew back then that you know now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think because I'm a researcher, I had researched everything quite thoroughly. Yeah. <laughs> and I had used, I found, I felt like I had enough resources. Um, being a nurse as well, I knew what was involved from a medical perspective, um, you know, many, many ultrasounds, internal ultrasounds, um, which you just get very used to, um, and many injections, which the first time I did an injection on myself felt very strange because as a registered nurse, I'm used to injecting other people and not pointing the needle at myself. Um, so that was quite strange at the start. Um, but I guess the one thing that I know now that I didn't know then was just that how much support is out there and how supportive and amazing the mum community is. So once you tap into that, or I didn't even tap into it, it just comes to you. So in the later stages of my pregnancy, that mum community really ramped up. So all my friends, which is nearly, well, I've got a few friends that don't have children or families, but all my friends with kids were texting me and my friends without kids as well. Hope you're feeling okay. Hope you're going all right. Is there anything I can do? Here's a book I found really helpful to get through labor, <laughs> um, things like that. And then after Toby was born, I nearly could not keep up with the text messages. So 
you know, we'd get to the night time and he'd be asleep in the lounge room or wherever. And I'd say to mum, I have to get my laptop out and reply some of these messages because they're just mounting up. And yeah, just so much support. And, you know, people would text me and say, oh, you're on day three. Um, he could be cluster feeding today, but don't worry. It'll be okay. It ends. <laughs> yeah, because you're so tired and exhausted as well. So you're like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Wow. And I've never had a baby before. Um, and yes, I'm a nurse, but I'm not a midwife and I've never had a baby. Um, so just that support and it's still going now, three and a half months um, along um, and it's just amazing. So um, I feel very, very fortunate that we've got such an amazing community and that Toby is loved by so many um, and that you know i know that i'm not a i'm not a good person i'm very independent i think it's the only child within me i'm not very good at asking for help <laughs> but i think you know that community is just there and if i need anything you know they do whatever they could to help us along the way um especially given the fact that you know it's it's toby and i and, and we're very lucky to have the help from my mum as well so um yeah that's probably one thing i just didn't expect and didn't know so yeah it's been lovely you mentioned something earlier about the possibility of the donor being in Toby's life or something around that. What 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 did you mean by that? Yeah, so this is a whole nother sort of area of thought that I now need to think about. It never ends. <laughs> I think parenting life is just decision fatigue, I've decided. <laughs> it's just decision after decision after decision. Like even in the middle of the night, should I change his nappy? Should I do this? Should I feed him? Should I put him back to bed? So they're minor decisions, but these are sort of more major decisions. So uh, when you get the donor profile, um, on there is uh, whether they're happy for access um, to, to them. So uh, the law changed a few years ago where donor conceived children when they turn 18 are allowed to have the details of their donor and that, yeah. that's mandatory. Oh, okay. So if you are gonna donate um, sperm, um, then you have to be happy with the fact that the child will know your name when they turn 18. Okay. So that's really interesting in itself. And then, if the donor's happy, they can consent for early release of their details before the child's 18. So that is something that's at my clinic is on the, and I'm sure it's probably at most clinics, is on the donor profile um, documents that you get. So our donor is happy, well, he was happy, it may have changed as well. And that's again, something the counsellor talks to you about because donors can often sort of repartner and perhaps their partner's not happy with the fact that they might have all these children in their life. so. That, you know, that might have changed, but um, when we got his profile, he was open to having his details released before any donor conceived children of his were 18. So that is something that I'm really gonna have to think about. The counselor had some really good points to think about. Um, if I do, or if we do wanna meet him, um, it might be good to meet him when Toby's young, so that if we decide that, you know, we're just not vibing or it's not a relationship that we wanna pursue, um, Toby will have no memory of it. Um, you know, I think that's probably unlikely, but well, I hope so, but um, you know, it's something to consider. Um, the other really thing that blows my mind is that Toby also has four donor conceived siblings. So donor siblings oh. are called diblings, which is just the cutest terminology oh. ever. <laughs> I've never diblings. heard of that. Yeah. Diblings. And there's four, well, there was four. So I asked the clinic last year when I was pregnant, I was like, oh, does, does this child, and I didn't know the gender or anything at that stage, does this child have other 
siblings and all the clinic could tell me that all they're allowed to tell me was um, that he had four at that time. So they might be more now. The other thing too, though, is that I had a real lag between making the embryos and then conceiving him. So, you know, and they might be older than him as well because of that lag, because usually people just go straight through the process. Um, so I think at the moment, and, and I know this is on the record, but um, I think what I'm vaguely thinking about at the moment is that we might reach out to the Dibblings first and then have a chat to them. And I would love to make a community with them if, if they were open to that, because I think family is what you make it these days and families come in all shapes and forms. And if they were open to, you know, sort of having a bit of a community where the Dibblings got to see each other a couple of times a year yeah. or more, depending on how it goes and, and where everyone's located, um, I would be really open to that. That would be really lovely, I think. Um, so that's probably something I'll do first. And you do that through VARTA, um, which is, so there's a regulatory sort of body around all this. So it's a Victorian assisted reproductive and this is what I should have looked up, teased, I, teased, I want to say technology, but I don't think it is, um, association, so VARTA. So they have all the details of all the donor-conceived children in Victoria, and they're the sort of middle mediating body. So if I want to get in touch with the Dibblings, then I contact VARTA and they, they sort of reach out to them. And then if they consent, we exchange details. That's my understanding at, at this point in time. Um, I stand to be corrected if that's not quite how it works. And same for the donor as well. So I can reach out to Varta and say, we'd like to can make contact with the donor. And then if he's still open to that early consent before 18, um, then we they would, I assume, put us in touch with each other. So yeah, there, there's some decisions that I need to make, but I, at the moment I'm leaning towards going to reach out to the Dibblings first and also ask them if they've met the donor and how that went and what that looked like and what sort of, what are they planning to do with future relationships and things like that, um, and then take it from there. So yeah, something I'm currently pondering. <laughs> So I also heard that there's a limit on how many kids each donor can yeah. uh, support. Yeah, so in Victoria, again, very strict in terms of anything to do with IVF. So my understanding is that it's a limit of 10 children per donor, which is good because I don't know if you've seen those stories from overseas yeah. where, you know, I think one guy in America had 50 children or something ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, you don't want those children meeting each meeting and you know having a relationship and having children together that's tricky um so yeah it's 10 in victoria so that's another question i have which i haven't sort of answered yet is if i want to use my other four embryos can i and has has he reached the limit which i think is a really interesting question itself because you know i've done a lot of effort and money to have those embryos sitting there so if he's reached the limit i guess that's my fault because I took a bit longer in the process and I had them on ice maybe longer than other people did. But yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. So I think I probably won't have any more children because just being a solo mum, I think it's probably just good to focus on Toby. I'd love to, but I just don't think it's probably practical for us, but who knows. <laughs> What's the cutoff for IVF nowadays? Where, where do they say we've gone past the point of putting these eggs back into you? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. So mm. I'm not sure if there is a legal limit. I think it might be, again, clinic dependent. Um, uh, yeah, and then I guess what the fertility doctor's willing to do and I guess given your medical circumstances as well and how deep your pockets are, unfortunately, because it's a very expensive process. 
You seem so positive about the whole experience, and it sounds like you've had a you, you had a lot of knowledge going into it. What what wasn't a positive thing about it? Was there anything that you need to look out for, or that people should be aware of that that did surprise you? Um, I think I think people I think using the counsellor is critical, uh, in my opinion, and maybe it's just because I that was my first experience of of having access and and having you know semi-regular contact with a counsellor but I think you know when you're thinking about these decisions um, it's such a huge decision and and lots of stuff in your life might pop up and you might need to work through that and digest it and um, have it it's so as I said before it's so good to have a chat to someone that's objective Um, because you know you can talk to your family and your friends and they'll always be supportive but to have that objective person and also the counsellor was specific to fertility so she had brought up stuff that I had not thought about at all like meeting the donor um, you know thinking about what the child's going to look like so my donor um, is also fair um, because you just really don't know when they're born if they're going to look like you or if they're going to have the genetic profile of the donor in our case toby looks like me and we're 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 in the process of doing side by side baby shots because he looks exactly like me at that age which is a bit scary Uh, and he may change as well as he grows but um yeah we've you know i feel lucky that you know he he will look in the mirror and think you know i do look like my mum and i do look like i belong in this family Mm. It's one probably less challenge that we might have. But I just think, yeah, having access to that counsellor was a really critical thing. Yeah, I just think for me, you know, things will pop up about family and what does that mean for you and, you know, if you've got any tricky family situations or, yeah, and just things that I hadn't thought about that she really sort of set me some homework and made me go and think about and also would send me away with resources. So, like, um, I really love um, programs like Australian Story and yeah. Insight and that follow people's lives. And there's some really great episodes around um, donor-conceived children and people going through IVF um, that are on those programs that she was able to point me in that direction. So I think that's probably one of the take-homes that I would suggest to other people. The other thing as well that I don't think we've pinpointed yet is why all of a sudden you'd, you'd had all these eggs, you've waited, why now? Like what, what made you go now? now? I'm going to do it now. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is really interesting. So, you know, it was, it's weird because in 2018, I was like all for it. I was like, yep, let's go. Um, and then in 2022, I was way more cautious. As I said, the world was a much different place. We were in a pandemic. Um, at least we had vaccines by that point. And um, that was reassuring. And I'd spoken to my fertility doctor. I was like, oh, pandemic, coronavirus. He's like, oh, we've got vaccines. It's, you know, good move forward. And I was like, okay. Um, and then I was like starting to spiral a bit like, oh, war in Ukraine, oh, the climate change reports, awful. And, um, you know, it was fascinating. So I reconnected with the counselor and, um, and so I've had the same one the whole way through and she's been amazing. And she's just like, what's stopping you, Susie? Like, you know, you're a woman that's from from knowing you and talking to you, you love, I really believe in creating your own destiny and putting things in place um, and having a plan B and a plan C, as I've mentioned. So she she knew that about me and she's like, what's stopping you? And I'm like, oh, these things, the world is a crazy place. Is it the right thing to bring a child into the world and to be a single mother? And um, I guess she sort of encouraged me to go back to my core values of like, do you want this? 
you are in control of this. Why are you stopping yourself? You know, time is ticking. You're not going to be able to make this decision forever. You're not going to have this window of opportunity forever. Um, and I also talked to a couple of girlfriends that had had really difficult IVF journeys with their partners. And they were just like, what are you doing? You've got this opportunity to do something that you want to do. Um, and you're thinking a bit too macro. <laughs> and so I really had to really, really uh, spent a lot of time deciding and thinking and going out walking and, um, you know, really putting a lot of thought into it, which I perhaps didn't do so much in 2018. But as I said, the world was a different place. And I think I just had to come back to, you know, um, my values and that I wanted this and that I could provide a really nice life for a child. I had the support of my mum. And then, you know, in the pandemic, I bought this house in the country <laughs> and, um, you know, in terms of things like climate change and, and values and community and support, this town really offered all of that to us. You know, they were just the values that I really loved. And I just thought, right, I have all of these amazing resources. I've got this amazing community around us. Um, I have a, a, like I've always lived in apartments, but I was able to, because it was in the country, afford a house. So I have a house and I have a backyard and I have a veggie garden. And they're all things that I want to share with a child and I think is a really nice way to grow up. And that was kind of speaking to the counselor and sort of getting over these macro issues and thinking, you know, and, and as a fertility doctor said as well, there's never a right time to have a child. It's never going to be the perfect moment. You're never going to be in the right place in your career. You're never going to have enough money that you want to have in your bank account. You know, the, the pandemic's going to be on for a while longer. Like it's, there's never a right time. Um, but I just thought I have a really nice life and I have the resources and the support of my mum and my friends and my community and I love this town and that's that kind of got me there in the end of like this is something that I want to try knowing that it might not be successful but I wanted to try so that I had no regrets as well and that's that's where I got to in the end so that the house and the town got, got me across the line just that last little sort of five percent <laughs> amazing and I was just like one last maybe question you did mention that your mum raised you and, you know, you have a very close relationship with your mum and I wonder mm. how much that lived experience of your mum being a solo parent played mm. into your confidence maybe around that you could do that too. Absolutely, yeah. And big shout out to my mum. She's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I guess I also felt like I was sort of propagating the cycle of our family of being solo parents and that came up in counselling and the counsellor's just like what, what are you talking about you're it's a different situation you're choosing to go down this path you know your mum didn't sadly have that choice because she was widowed when I was one um and yeah so I sort of felt like oh this is some crazy family cycle that we're, that we're in but it's you know it's a beautiful one as well and I think Having seen her do it, she worked really hard when I was young and having she, we had the support of her parents when I was growing up, so my nan and pa, who were amazing. So I spent lots of time with them and my pa had a big veggie garden and I'm probably not doing him so proud with my pathetic veggies at the moment, but <laughs> um, got a few few going. But um, yeah, I think I could, knew, I think you're right, Dash. I, I knew it could be done um, and I definitely had her support and um, I think that really helped and, you know, um, 
yeah, just knowing that it, it can be done and you can have a very full life. And, and I think too, that families come in all shapes and forms and, and sometimes family is what you what you make it as well. And, and I'm a definitely a big believer in that. So um, yeah, and just to have her support and um, is just so special. And yeah, she was in the delivery suite with us and she was there when he was born, she cut the cord, which was amazing. Yeah. And she was one of the first people to hold him. And I didn't cry until I saw, like I was sort of, he was born and I was like, amazing. This is, I'm so glad he's here safely and he's appeared to be healthy. That was my big sort of, you know, um, sort of focus in the delivery suite, getting him out safely and making sure he was healthy baby. Um, and she announced the gender. So that was the gender. I didn't have a gender reveal party. It was the birth, yeah. <laughs> so, which the staff were really excited about because most people know the gender these yeah. days. Um, so yeah, and then seeing her hold him and the next generation and knowing that I had her support was when I started to really cry and just think, oh, it's really special. So, and then that's when she had this thought about, you know, what an amazing gift that this donor has given us. And, you know, we will give this little boy such a wonderful life. So yeah, very, very lucky to have her support. And I, you know, I think it can be done without that family support, but to have it just means the world to me. And um, we're very, very fortunate. So, yeah. How wonderful. Wow. You really do have a partner in this journey. Yeah, you oh, really absolutely. do. You really do. Yeah. Partners yeah, come yeah. in all shapes and sizes and relationships. And I feel like you yeah. really do. That's amazing. She's been doing all the washing. So thanks, <laughs> Mum. <laughs> Luckily, um, she really uh, likes doing washing. <laughs> so I think your mum is an amazing partner yeah i'm very very lucky yeah um, and she's 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 very happy with their track record we've only had to throw one suit in the bin <laughs> so, <laughs> due to a you know a slight disaster so um yeah uh, uh, we call them massive code browns because she's a nurse as well so uh, <laughs> we often code do brown. a lot of nurse speak in this house <laughs> system like, shut not, down <laughs> yeah i'm not i'm not dealing with this that one goes in the bin <laughs> So yeah, look, we've, we have never, like those first four weeks, you're in the newborn trenches and you know, the maternal child health nurse comes to visit you the, the first couple of days and you know, they're all checking on your mental health and you know, um, the day three blues and all my girlfriends were texting me on day three, you okay, you going to write, all that sort of stuff and that, you know, um, but I don't think we had ever laughed so much. Like, you know, we had poo everywhere and we everywhere. We would just laugh, be like, how could something so small produce so much stuff? <laughs> so it was just such a happy, special time. And I feel so chuffed that she can really enjoy him and soak him up because, you know, she was very busy when I was little and worked full time. And, you know, she's singing songs to him and I've never seen her do that. And I said to her yesterday, we were singing songs to him in a cafe in public um yesterday we we're out for lunch and I said to her you've lost it like did you ever do this for me and she's like no but it's Toby I have to do it for Toby <laughs> so <laughs> she's really enjoying it which I think is really special so very lucky <laughs> amazing wow well thank you so much Susie for I sharing your story with us and being so generous with your time and you know I know we asked you some doozy questions there and you were so open and authentic and and honest with your responses so thank you I know so many of our listeners are going to be very interested because millennials these are these are decision times for us around this type yeah. of um you know rapidly approaching 40 over rapidly here, so. yeah exactly <laughs> and um I think yeah. it's incredible you can have this choice yeah it's yeah. absolutely incredible so lucky 
because yeah. that wasn't a reality for a lot of generations. No. And the technology, as you said, and the science is only getting better and better. And so, yeah. you know, I think it's been a very important conversation. So thank you so much, Susie. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Sarah. Thanks for taking the time to listen to us here at the XYZ Experiment podcast. Don't forget to leave a rating and review. And if you enjoyed our show, make sure you tell all your friends and family and, of course, subscribe. Uh, Follow us on Instagram at the XYZ Experiment. You'll get all our latest updates and news. And a big shout out to Luke Champion, who composed our original music.